This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It seems like that game of Mahjong was only yesterday. We're back to Agatha Christie's famous mystery, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Today, Chapter 17, Parker. It occurred to me the next morning that under the exhilaration produced by Tin Ho, or the perfect winning, I might have been slightly indiscreet. True, Poirot had not asked me to keep the discovery of the ring to myself. On the other hand, he had said nothing about it whilst at Fernley, and as far as I knew, I was the only person aware that it had been found. I felt distinctly guilty. The fact was by now spreading to King's Abbot like wildfire. I was expecting wholesale reproaches from Poirot any minute. The joint funeral of Mrs. Ferrars and Roger Ackroyd was fixed for eleven o'clock. It was a melancholy and impressive ceremony. All the party from Fernley were there. After it was over, Poirot, who had also been present, took me by the arm and invited me to accompany him back to the larches. He was looking very grave, and I feared that my indiscretion of the night before had got round to his ears, but it soon transpired that his thoughts were occupied by something of a totally different nature. "'See you,' he said. "'We must act. With your help, I propose to examine the witness. We will question him.' "'We will put such fear into him "'that the truth is bound to come out.' "'What windows are you talking of?' "'I asked, very much surprised. "'Parker,' said Poirot, "'I asked him to be at my house this morning at twelve o'clock. "'He should await us there at this very minute.' "'What do you think?' I ventured, "'glancing sideways at his face. "'I know this, that I am not satisfied.' "'You think that it was he who blackmailed Mrs. Ferrars?' "'Either that or—' "'Well,' I said, after waiting a minute or two, "'my friend, I will say this to you. "'I hope it was he.' "'The gravity of his manner, "'and something indefinable that tinged it, "'reduced me to silence. "'On arrival at the larches, "'we were informed that Parker was already there "'awaiting our return. "'As we entered the room, "'the butler rose respectfully.' "'Good morning, Parker,' said Poirot pleasantly. "'One instant, I pray of you.' 
"'He removed his overcoat and gloves. "'Allow me, sir,' said Parker, "'and sprang forward to assist him. "'He deposited the articles neatly on a chair by the door. "'Poirot watched him with approval. "'Thank you, my good Parker,' he said. "'Take a seat, will you not? "'What I have to say may take some time.' "'Parker seated himself with an apologetic bend of the head. "'Now, what do you think I asked you to come here for this morning, eh?' "'Parker coughed. "'I understood, sir, that you wish to ask me a few questions about my late master. "'Private-like.' "'Precisement,' said Poirot, beaming. "'Have you made many experiments in blackmail?' "'Sir!' The butler sprang to his feet. "'Do not excite yourself,' said Poirot placidly. "'Do not play the farce of the honest, injured man. "'You know all there is to know about the blackmail. "'Is it so?' "'Sir, I've never, never been insulted,' suggested Poirot. "'In such a way before? "'Then why, my excellent Parker, "'were you so anxious to overhear the conversation "'in Mr. Ackroyd's study the other evening "'after you had caught the word blackmail?' "'I, I wasn't, I—' "'Who was your last master?' "'rapped out Poirot suddenly. M- "'My last master?' "'Yes, the master you were with before you came to Mr. Ackroyd. Uh, "'A Major Ellerby, sir.' Poirot took the words out of his mouth. "'Just so. Major Ellerby. Major Ellerby was addicted to drugs, was he not? You travelled about with him. When he was in Bermuda there was some trouble. A man was killed. Major Ellerby was partly responsible. It was hushed up. But you know about it. How much did Major Ellerby pay you to keep your mouth shut?' Parker was staring at him open-mouthed. The man had gone to pieces. His cheeks shook flabbily. "'You see, me, I have made inquiries,' said Poirot pleasantly. "'It is as I say. You got the good son then as blackmail, and Major Ellerby went down paying you until he died. Now I want to hear about your latest experiment.' Parker still stared. "'It is useless to deny, Parker.' "'Hercule Poirot knows. "'It is so, what I've said about Major Ellerby, is it not?' "'As though against his will, Parker nodded reluctantly once. "'His face was ashen pale. "'But I never heard a hair of Mr. Ackroyd's head,' he moaned. "'Honest to God, sir, I didn't. "'I've been afraid of this coming all the time, and I tell you I didn't. "'I didn't kill him.' "'I didn't kill him!' His voice rose almost to a scream. "'I am inclined to believe you, my friend,' said Poirot. "'You have not the nerve, the courage, but I must have the truth. "'I'll tell you anything, sir, anything you want to know. "'It's true that I tried to listen that night. "'A word or two I heard made me curious. "'And Mr. Ackroyd's wanting not to be disturbed.' "'and shutting himself up with the doctor the way he did. "'It's God's own truth what I told the police. "'I heard the word blackmail, sir, and, well—' "'He paused. "'You thought there might be something in it for you,' "'suggested Poirot, smoothly. "'Well, well, yes, I did, sir. "'I thought that if Mr. Ackroyd was being blackmailed, 
"'Why shouldn't I have a share of the pickings?' "'A very curious expression passed over Poirot's face. "'He leaned forward. "'Had you any reason to suppose before that night "'that Mr. Ackroyd was being blackmailed?' "'No, indeed, sir. "'It was a good surprise to me. "'Such a regular gentleman in all his habits.' "'How much did you overhear?' "'Not very much, sir. "'There seemed what I might call a spite against me. "'Of course I had to attend to my duties in the pantry, "'and when I did creep along once or twice to the study, "'it was no use. "'The first time Dr. Shepherd came out, "'and almost caught me in the act, "'and another time Mr. Raymond passed me in the big hall "'and went that way, so I knew it was no use, "'and when I went with the tray, Miss Flora headed me off.' Poirot stared a long time at the man, as if to test his sincerity. Parker returned his gaze earnestly. "'I hope you believe me, sir. I've been afraid all along the police would rake up that old business with Major Ellaby, and he's suspicious of me in consequence.' "'Eh bien,' said Poirot at last. "'I am disposed to believe you, but there is one thing I must request of you, to show me your bank-book.' "'You have a bank-book, I presume?' "'Yes, sir, as a matter of fact. I have it with me now.' With no sign of confusion, he produced it from his pocket. Poirot took the slim, green-covered book and perused the entries. "'Ah, I perceive you have purchased five hundred pounds of national savings certificates this year.' "'Yes, sir. I, I have already over a thousand pounds saved. The result of my connection with... Um, "'My late master, Major Ellerby. "'And I have quite a little flutter on some horses this year. "'Very successful. "'If you remember, sir, a rank outsider won the Jubilee. "'I was fortunate to back it. Twenty pounds.' "'Poirot handed him back the book. "'I will wish you good morning. "'I believe that you have told me the truth. "'If you had not, so much the worse for you, my friend.' "'When Parker had departed, Poirot picked up his overcoat once more. "'Going out again?' I asked. "'Yes, we will pay a little visit to the good Monsieur Hammond.' "'You believe Parker's story?' "'It is credible enough on the face of it. "'It seems clear that, unless he's a very good actor indeed, "'he genuinely believes it was Ackroyd himself who was the victim of blackmail. "'If so, he knows nothing at all about the Mrs. Ferrar's business.' "'Then in that case, who?' "'Precisement. Who? "'But our visit to Monsieur Hammond will accomplish one purpose. "'It will either clear Parker completely, or else—' "'Well?' "'I've fallen into the bad habit of leaving my sentences unfinished this morning,' "'said Poirot apologetically. "'You must bear with me.' "'By the way,' I said, rather sheepishly, "'I've got a confession to make. "'I'm afraid I have inadvertently let out something about that ring.' "'What ring?' "'The ring you found in the goldfish pond.' "'Ah, yes,' said Poirot, smiling broadly. "'I hope you're not annoyed. "'It was very careless of me.' "'But not at all, my good friend. "'Not at all. "'I laid no commands upon you. "'You were at liberty to speak of it if you so wished.' "'She was interested, your sister?' "'She was indeed. "'It created a sensation. 
"'All sorts of theories are flying about.' "'Ah, and yet it is so simple. "'The true explanation leapt to the eye, did it not?' "'Did it?' I said dryly. Poirot laughed. "'The wise man does not commit himself,' he observed. "'Is not that so? "'But here we are at Mr. Hammond's.' The lawyer was in his office, and we were ushered in without any delay. He rose and greeted us in his dry, precise manner. Poirot came at once to the point. "'Monsieur, I desire from you certain information, that is, if you will be so good as to give it to me. You acted, I understand, for the late Mrs. Ferrars of King's Paddock. I noticed a swift gleam of surprise which showed in the lawyer's eyes, before his professional reserve came down once more like a mask over his face. Certainly, all her affairs pass through our hands. Very good. Now, before I ask you to tell me anything, I should like you to listen to the story Dr. Shepard will relate to you. You have no objection, have you, my friend, to repeating the conversation you had with Mr. Ackroyd last Friday night? Not in the least, I said, and straightway began the recital of that strange evening. Hammond listened with close attention. That is all, I said, when I had finished. Blackmail, said the lawyer thoughtfully. "'You are surprised?' asked Poirot. The lawyer took off his pince-nez and polished them with his handkerchief. "'No,' he replied. "'I can hardly say that I'm surprised. I've suspected something of the kind for some time.' "'That brings us,' said Poirot, "'to the information for which I am asking. If anyone can give us an idea of the actual sums paid, you are the man, monsieur.' "'I see no object in withholding the information,' said Hammond, after a moment or two. "'During the past year, Mrs. Ferrars had sold out certain securities, "'and the money for them was paid into her account and not reinvested. "'As her income was a large one, and she lived very quietly after her husband's death, "'it seems certain that these sums of money were paid away for some special purpose. "'I once sounded her on the subject, "'and she said that she was obliged to support several of her husband's poor relations.' I let the matter drop, of course. Until now, I've always imagined that the money was paid to some woman who had had a claim on Ashley Ferrars. I never dreamed that Mrs. Ferrars herself was involved. And the amount? asked Poirot. In all, I should say the various sums totaled at least twenty thousand pounds. Twenty thousand pounds? I exclaimed. In one year? Mrs. Ferrars was a very wealthy woman said Poirot dryly, and the penalty for murder is not a pleasant one. "'Is there anything else I can tell you?' inquired Mr. Hammond. "'I thank you, no,' said Poirot, rising. "'All my excuses for having deranged you.' "'Not at all.' "'The word derange,' I remarked, when we were outside again, "'is applicable to mental disorder only.' "'Ah!' cried Poirot. "'Never will my English be quite perfect. "'A curious language. "'I should then have said, "'Disarranged, n'est-ce pas?' "'Disturbed is the word you had in mind. "'Thank you, my friend. "'The word exact. "'You are jealous for it. "'Ah, bien. "'What about our friend Parker now? 
with twenty thousand pounds in hand, would he have continued being a butler? Je ne pense pas. It is, of course, possible that he banked the money under another name. But I am disposed to believe he spoke the truth to us. If he is a scoundrel, he is a scoundrel on a mean scale. He has not the big ideas. That leaves us as a possibility. Raymond, or, well, Major Blunt. Surely not Raymond, I objected. "'since we know that he was desperately hard up "'for a matter of five hundred pounds.' "'That is what he says, yes. "'As to Hector Blunt, "'I will tell you something as to the good Major Blunt,' "'interrupted Poirot. "'It is my business to make inquiries. "'That legacy of which he speaks, "'I have discovered that the amount of it "'was close upon twenty thousand pounds. "'What do you think of that?' I was so taken aback that I could hardly speak. It's possible, I said at last, a well-known man like Hector Blunt. Poirot shrugged his shoulders. Who knows? At least he is a man with big ideas. I confess that I hardly see him as a blackmailer, but there is another possibility that you have not even considered. What is that? The fire, my friend. Ackroyd himself may have destroyed that letter. "'blue envelope and all, after you left him.' "'I hardly think that likely,' I said slowly. "'And yet, of course, it may be so. "'He might have changed his mind.' "'We had just arrived at my house, "'and on the spur of the moment "'I invited Poirot to come in and take potluck. "'I thought Caroline would be pleased with me, "'but it is hard to satisfy one's womenfolk. "'It appears that we were eating chops for lunch.' "'the kitchen staff being regaled on tripe and onions. "'And two chops set before three people "'are productive of embarrassment. "'But Caroline is seldom daunted for long, "'with magnificent mendacity, "'that although James laughed at her for doing so, "'she adhered strictly to a vegetarian diet. "'She descanted ecstatically on the delights of nut cutlets, "'which I am quite sure she's never tasted, "'and ate a Welsh rarebit with gusto "'and frequent cutting remarks as to the dangers of flesh foods. Afterwards, when we were sitting in front of the fire and smoking, Caroline attacked Poirot directly. "'Not found Ralph Patone yet?' she asked. "'Where should I find him, mademoiselle?' "'I thought, perhaps, that you'd found him in Cranchester,' said Caroline, with intense meaning in her tone. Poirot looked merely bewildered. "'In Cranchester? But why in Cranchester?' I enlightened him with a touch of malice. One of our ample staff of private detectives happened to see you in a car on the Cranchester Road yesterday. Poirot's bewilderment vanished. He laughed heartily. Aha, that! A simple visit to the dentist. Say, dude, my tooth, it aches. I go there. My tooth, it is at once better. I think to return quickly. The dentist, he says no. Better have it out. I argue. He insists. He has his way. That particular tooth. It will never ache again. Caroline collapsed rather like a prick balloon. We fell to discussing Ralph Patone. A weak nature, I insisted, but not a vicious one. Ah, said Poirot, but the weakness, where does it end? 
"'Exactly,' said Caroline. "'Take James here. "'Weak as water, if I weren't about to look after him.' "'My dear Caroline,' I said irritably, "'can't you talk without dragging in personalities?' "'You are weak, James,' said Caroline, quite unmoved. "'I'm eight years older than you are. "'Oh, I don't mind Monsieur Poirot knowing that.' "'I should never have guessed it, mademoiselle,' said Poirot, with a gallant little bow. Eight years older, but I've always considered it my duty to look after you. With a bad bringing up, heaven knows what mischief you might have got into by now.' "'I might have married a beautiful adventuress,' I murmured, gazing at the ceiling and blowing smoke rings. "'Adventuress!' said Caroline, with a snort. "'If we're talking of adventuresses—' She left the sentence unfinished. "'Well?' I said, with some curiosity. "'Nothing. But I can think of someone about a hundred miles away.' Then she turned to Poirot suddenly. "'James sticks to it that you believe someone in the house committed the murder. All I can say is, you're wrong.' "'I should not like it to be wrong,' said Poirot. "'It is not, uh, how do you say, my métier?' "'I've got the fact pretty clearly.' "'continued Caroline, taking no notice of Poirot's remark. "'From James and others. "'As far as I can see, of the people in the house, "'only two could have had the chance of doing it, "'Ralph Patone and Flora Ackroyd. "'My dear Caroline, "'now, James, don't interrupt me. "'I know what I'm talking about. "'Parker met her outside the door, didn't he? "'He didn't hear her uncle saying good-night to her. "'She could have killed him then and there. "'Caroline?' "'I'm not saying she did, James. "'I'm saying she could have. "'As a matter of fact, "'the floor is like all those young girls nowadays, "'with no veneration for their betters "'and thinking they know best on every subject under the sun. "'I don't for a minute believe she'd kill even a chicken. "'But there it is. "'Mr. Raymond and Major Blunt have alibis. "'Mrs. Ackroyd's got an alibi. "'Even that Russell woman seems to have one. "'And a good job for her it is she has.' "'Who's left? Only Ralph and Flora. And say what you will. I don't believe Ralph Batone is a murderer. A boy we've known all our lives.' Poirot was silent for a minute, watching the curling smoke rise from his cigarette. When at last he spoke, it was in a gentle, faraway voice that produced a curious impression. It was totally unlike his usual manner. "'Let us take a man, a very ordinary man,' "'a man with no idea of murder in his heart. "'There is in him somewhere a strain of weakness, deep down. "'It has so far never been called into play. "'Perhaps it never will be. "'And if so, he will go to his grave honored and respected by everyone. "'But let us suppose that something occurs. "'He is in difficulties, or perhaps not that even.' He may stumble by accident on a secret, a secret involving life or death to someone, and his first impulse will be to speak out, to do his duty as an honest citizen. And then the strain of weakness tells. Here is a chance of money, a great amount of money. He wants money, he desires it, and it is so easy. He has to do nothing for it, just keep silence. That is the beginning. 
the desire for money grows. He must have more and more. He is intoxicated by the gold mine which is opened at his feet. He becomes greedy, and in his greed he overreaches himself. One can press a man like that as far as one likes, but with a woman one must not press too far, before a woman has at heart a great desire to speak the truth. How many husbands who have deceived their wives go comfortably to their graves, carrying their secret with them? How many wives who have deceived their husbands wreck their lives by throwing the fact in those same husbands' teeth? They have been pressed too far. In a reckless moment, which they will afterwards regret, bien entendu, they fling safety to the winds and turn at bay, proclaiming the truth with great momentary satisfaction to themselves. So it was, I think, in this case. The strain was too great, and so there came your proverb, the death of the goose that laid the golden eggs. But that is not the end. Exposure faced the man of whom we are speaking, and he is not the same man he was, say, a year ago. His moral fiber is blunted. He is desperate. He is fighting a losing battle, and he is prepared to take any means that come to his hand, for exposure means ruin to him. And so, the dagger strikes. He was silent for a moment. It was as though he had laid a spell upon the room. I cannot try to describe the impression his words produced. There was something in the merciless analysis and the ruthless power of vision which struck fear into both of us. Afterwards, he went on softly. The danger removed, he will be himself again, normal, kindly. But if the need again arises, then once more, he will strike. Caroline roused herself at last. You are speaking of Ralph Patone, she said. You may be right, you may not but you have no business to condemn a man unheard. The telephone bell rang sharply. I went out into the hall and took off the receiver. What? I said. Yes, Dr. Shepard speaking. I listened for a minute or two, then replied briefly. Replacing the receiver, I went back into the drawing room. Poirot, I said. They have detained a man at Liverpool. His name is Charles Kent, "'and he's believed to be the stranger who visited Fernley that night. "'They want me to go to Liverpool at once and identify him. "'We'll return with Chapter 18 right after these sponsor messages. "'And now Chapter 18, Charles Kent. "'Half an hour later saw Poirot, myself, and Inspector Raglan "'in the train on the way to Liverpool. "'The inspector was clearly very excited.' "'We may get a line on the blackmailing part of the business, "'if on nothing else,' he declared jubilantly. "'He's a rough customer, this fellow, "'by what I heard over the phone. "'Takes dope, too. "'We ought to find it easy to get what we want out of him. "'If there was the shadow of a motive, "'nothing's more likely than that he killed Mr. Ackroyd. "'But in that case, why is young Patone keeping out of the way? "'The whole thing's a muddle. "'That's what it is. "'By the way, Poirot, you were quite right about those fingerprints.' They were Mr. Ackroyd's own. I had rather the same idea myself, but I dismissed it as hardly feasible. I smiled to myself. Inspector Raglan was so very plainly saving his face. 
"'As regards this man,' said Borrow, "'he's not yet arrested, eh?' "'No, detained under suspicion.' "'And what account does he give of himself?' "'Precious little,' said the inspector, with a grin. "'He's a wary bird, I gather. "'A lot of abuse, but very little more.' "'On arrival at Liverpool, "'I was surprised to find that Poirot "'was welcomed with acclamation. "'Superintendent Hayes, who met us, "'had worked with Poirot over some case long ago, "'and had evidently an exaggerated opinion of his powers. "'Now we've got Monsieur Poirot here, "'we shan't be long.' "'he said cheerfully. "'I thought you'd retired, monsieur.' "'And so I had, my good Hayes. "'And so I had. "'But how tedious is retirement! "'You cannot imagine to yourself "'this monotony with which day comes after day.' "'Very likely. "'So you've come back to have a look "'at our own particular find. "'Is this Dr. Shepard? "'Think you'll be able to identify him, sir?' "'I'm not very sure,' I said doubtfully. "'How did you get hold of him?' inquired Borrow. "'Description was circulated, as you know, in the press and privately. Not much to go on, I admit. This fellow has an American accent, all right, and he doesn't deny that he was near King's Abbot that night. Just asks what the hell it is to do with us, and that he'll see us in hell before he answers any questions.' Uh, "'Is it permitted that I too see him?' asked Borrow. The superintendent closed one eye knowingly. "'Very glad to have you, sir. "'You've got permission to do anything you please. "'Inspector Jap of Scotland Yard was asking after you the other day. "'Said he'd heard you were connected unofficially with this case. "'Where's Captain Patone hiding, sir? "'Can you tell me that?' "'I doubt if it would be wise at the present juncture,' said Poirot primly, "'and I bit my lips to prevent a smile. "'The little man really did it very well.' After some further parley, we were taken to interview the prisoner. He was a young fellow, I should say not more than twenty-two or three, tall, thin, with slightly shaking hands, and the evidences of considerable physical strength somewhat run to seed. His hair was dark, but his eyes were blue and shifty, seldom meeting a glance squarely. I had all along cherished the illusion that there was something familiar about the figure I had met that night, but if this were indeed he, I was completely mistaken. "'He did not remind me in the least of anyone I knew.' "'Now then, Kent,' said the superintendent, "'stand up. Here are some visitors come to see you. "'Recognize any of them?' "'Kent glared at us sullenly, but did not reply. "'I saw his glance waver over the three of us "'and come back to rest on me. "'Well, sir,' said the superintendent to me, "'what do you say?' "'The height's the same,' I said. "'and as far as general appearances goes, "'it might well be the man in question. "'Beyond that, I couldn't go.' "'What the hell's the meaning of all this?' asked Kent. "'What have you got against me? "'Come on, out with it. "'What am I supposed to have done?' "'I nodded my head. "'It's the man,' I said. "'I recognize the voice.' "'Recognize my voice, do you? "'Where do you think you've heard it before?' "'On Friday evening last, outside the gates of Fernley Park, "'you asked me the way there.' "'I did, did I?' "'Do you admit it?' asked the inspector. "'I don't admit anything, not till I know what you've got on me.' "'Have you not read the papers in the last few days?' asked Poirot, speaking for the first time. "'The man's eyes narrowed. "'So that's it, is it? "'I saw an old gent had been croaked at Fernley.' 
"'Try to make out I did the job, are you?' "'You were dead that night?' said Poirot quietly. "'How do you know, mister?' "'By this.' Poirot took something from his pocket and held it out. "'It was the goose quill we found in the summer-house. "'At the sight of it the man's face changed. "'He half held out his hand. "'Snow,' said Poirot thoughtfully. "'No, my friend, it is empty. "'It lay where you dropped it in the summer-house that night.' "'Charles Kent looked at him uncertainly. "'You seem to know a hell of a lot about everything, "'you little foreign cock-duck. "'Perhaps you remember this. "'The papers say that the old gent was croaked "'between a quarter to ten and ten o'clock.' "'That is so,' agreed Poirot. "'Yes, but is it really so? "'That's what I'm getting at.' "'This gentleman will tell you,' said Poirot. "'He indicated Inspector Raglan. "'The latter hesitated.' "'glanced at Superintendent Hayes, then at Poirot, "'and finally, as though receiving sanction, he said, "'That's right, between a quarter to ten and ten o'clock.' "'Then you've nothing to keep me here for,' said Kent. "'I was away from Fernley Park by twenty-five minutes past nine. "'You can ask at the dog and whistle. "'That's a saloon about a mile out of Fernley on the road to Cranchester. "'I kicked up a bit of a row there, I remember.' "'As near as nothing to quarter to ten, it was. "'How about that?' "'Inspector Raglan wrote down something in his notebook. "'Well?' demanded Kent. "'Inquiries will be made,' said the inspector. "'If you've spoken the truth, you won't have anything to complain about. "'What were you doing at Fernley Park, anyway?' "'I went there to meet someone.' "'Who? That's none of your business.' "'You'd better keep a civil tongue in your head,' the superintendent warned him. "'To hell with a civil tongue. I went there on my own business, and that's all there is to it. If I was clear away before the murder was done, that's all that concerns you.' "'Your name, it is Charles Kent,' said Poirot. "'Where were you born?' The man stared at him, then he grinned. "'I'm a full-blown Britisher, all right,' he said. "'Yes,' said Poirot meditatively. "'I think you are. "'I fancy you were born in Kent.' "'The man stared. "'Why's that? "'Because of my name? "'What's that to do with it? "'Is a man whose name is Kent "'bound to be born in that particular county?' "'Under certain circumstances, "'I can imagine he might be,' "'said Poirot, very deliberately. "'Under certain circumstances, "'you comprehend.' "'There was so much meaning in his voice "'as to surprise the two police officers.' As for Charles Kent, he flushed a brick red, and for a moment I thought he was going to spring at Poirot. He thought better of it, though, and turned away with a kind of a laugh. Poirot nodded as though satisfied, and made his way out to the door. He was joined presently by the two officers. "'We'll verify that statement,' remarked Raglan. "'I don't think he's lying, though. But he's got to come clear with a statement as to what he was doing at Fernley. It looks to me as though we'd got our blackmailer all right.' On the other hand, granted his story's correct, he couldn't have had anything to do with the actual murder. He'd got ten pounds on him when he was arrested. Rather a large sum. I fancy that forty pounds went to him. The numbers of the notes didn't correspond. But of course he'd have changed them first thing. Mr. Ackroyd must have given him the money, and he made off with it as fast as possible. What was that about Kent being his birthplace? What's that got to do with it? Nothing whatever. 
said Poirot mildly. "'A little idea of mine, that was all. "'Me, I am famous for my little ideas.' "'Are you really?' said Raglan, "'studying him with a puzzled expression. "'The superintendent went into a roar of laughter. "'Many's the time I've heard Inspector Jap say that. "'Monsieur Poirot and his little ideas. "'Too fanciful for me, he'd say, "'but always something in them.' "'You mock yourself at me,' said Borrow, smiling. "'But never mind. "'The old ones, they laugh last sometimes, "'when the young, clever ones do not laugh at all.' "'And nodding his head at them in a sage manner, "'he walked out into the street. "'He and I lunched together at an hotel. "'I know now that the whole thing lay clearly unraveled before him. "'He had got the last thread he needed to lead him to the truth.' "'but at the time I had no suspicion of the fact. "'I overestimated his general self-confidence, "'and I took it for granted that the things which puzzled me "'must equally be puzzling to him. "'My chief puzzle was what the man Charles Kent "'could have been doing at Fernley. "'Again and again I put the question to myself "'and could get no satisfactory reply. "'At last I ventured a tentative query to Poro. "'His reply was immediate. "'Mon ami!' "'I do not think. I know.' "'Really?' I said, incredulously. "'Yes, indeed. I suppose now that to you it would not make sense if I said that he went to Fernley that night because he was born in Kent?' I stared at him. "'It certainly doesn't seem to make sense to me,' I said dryly. "'Ah!' said Poirot pityingly. "'Well, no matter.' I have still my little idea. Thanks for joining us for these two chapters from The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. We always appreciate reviews. So if you can find a moment, please just sit down, especially you Apple listeners, and send us a kind review for 1001 Stories for the Road. Until next Sunday at noon Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.